0: Thank you. Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more.
1: I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is g Hill. g is a coach, a professional harvester of the value of change in the software development industry. A geek for 40 years, he's spent the last two decades helping individuals, teams, and organizations take steps to become closer to who or how they wish to be. Welcome, g
2: Right, thank you. It's nice to be here.
3: Yeah, so uh, before we jump into the meat of things, uh, would you give our listeners maybe a little introduction to yourself? Um, you could tell them like, how you got started in the industry.
2: I got started in the industry by, uh, okay, do you really want me to tell you this? I, I had a relationship with the boss's girlfriend. And it yeah, got know, me so. fired. And uh, we moved in together, and I, I needed a job really, really badly. I'm, I'm a good talker. And I wanted to do some sort of sales, and I started to do computer sales. Hmm. And uh, I sold, you know, this was 1980, so there were not computer stores everywhere. There were a relatively small number of them, and I got a job selling computers, uh, personal computers, Ohio Scientifics for the for the other old people who might be in the audience. And um, what I found was that. I was absolutely fascinated by them. I enjoyed working with them so much and playing with them. I would basically make my make my calls and do all my work from nine to noon, um, and then handle whatever walk-ins came in, which were never really that many. And then spend from noon till nine just fussing with the computer, mm. and uh, and that's how I got into the trade. I ran an interest group for uh, the programming language fourth out of the out of the place. And one of my friends there asked me one time if I if I thought I could write a fourth for a new a new processor. And I said yes. Uh, I thought I could. And he said, Can you do it in six weeks? <laughs> and I gulped and said, Yeah. <laughs> and psh, a programmer was born. And I did that. I did that for several years. In fact, I was a fairly, I'm a hardcore fourth geek. If anybody out there has got any fourth work anymore, just give me a <laughs> holler. <laughs>
3: That's cool. Uh, so what what are you working on these days and sort of maybe give us a little bit more of the, the path to getting there?
2: Having been a geek at that point and a reasonably successful one for 15, 18 years or so, um, of course, I fell heavily into the design patterns movement back in, mm-hmm. in, in the middle 90s, and the center of the design patterns movement was the Portland Pattern Repository, which is often usually nowadays just called C2.com, and it was the world's first wiki, and uh, I participated very avidly there. And what I uh, eventually did was stumble across uh, the fact that Kent and Ward and Ron were formulating these ideas called extreme programming. Mm-hmm. And they seemed they seemed exactly right to me. And uh, I went to the very first uh, extreme programming immersion class in 1999. By that point, I'd already been using it everywhere and being a coach even though i was you know flying under the radar we didn't have that word back then and so about midway through the class i switched from being a student to being an instructor um because i was already too into it i already i already knew too many of the answers to the questions that the other students were asking even though i certainly didn't know how to be a very good coach at that point and i became a coach and hmm. that's uh that's what i've been doing now i'm still very much a practicing geek i code every day I love, mm-hmm. I love programming, uh, but, but my, my main work for the last 20 years has been as a coach. And now for the last three or four of those years, I've sort of split up to doing new content, uh, videos and podcasts and conversations and writing with people all the time. So that's kind of that's where I'm at at, at this point.
0: And you're also pretty active on Twitter. I, I, I see you pop up in my news feed, in my Twitter feed, quite often talking about things that are, are of interest to me and often in, in longer tweet threads, which I didn't even know was a thing until I stumbled across one of your early ones, I think.
2: I could not easily tell you how many times I have failed to write a book. And um, when I first started doing Twitter, and it's been like 10 years now since I started doing it, I... Um, I I saw someone do this thing where they replied to themselves and created Twitter threads. And I started, I started writing that way. And it is far and away the most productive way I've ever written. And so uh, yeah, every Sunday, I write one of those. And sometimes during the week depends on my mood, <laughs> I will write another one, I got one sort of brewing in my head right now. And I think I'm busy all day tomorrow but maybe on Wednesday I might get that get that in there but it's real it's actual improv you know I'm I'm writing those I call them muses I'm writing those muses live when they start spilling out into Twitter it's cuz I'm typing it one line at a time and hitting the hitting the send and and uh and going from there and yeah it's really it's been really productive for me now I I caution people uh I am not safe for work and <laughs> at at. At Twitter, I'm also not. I don't restrict myself in any way to topics of a of a a geekish nature. Uh, I talk a lot about music, uh, a certain amount about politics, a certain amount about art, and uh, and whatever's on my mind, whatever I'm up to. Yesterday, I was talking about how very much I wanted uh, chicken tikka masala. And how hard good. it would be to convince my wife to go with me 40 minutes to the nearest Indian restaurant to get carry out chicken tikka masala, which we actually did, and which I have leftovers here when we're done with our uh, our podcast.
0: One of the muses that that I really attached to and, and really enjoyed a while ago was on TDD, or test-driven development. Is is that a passionate subject for you, or is that just one of many at this point?
2: You know, it's, it's one of many, but a great deal of the other subjects are things that I learned in the framework of doing test-driven development. Mm-hmm. So remember, you know, I'm a geek's geek, and, and I pull a lot of my life lessons out of programming, what I've learned as a programmer, and, and that, that holds true there. So yeah, TDD is absolutely a passion of mine, but, but I'm not, you know, my other topics Many of them are related to the things that I learned in test-driven development.
0: TDD has been a, a pretty big, passionate subject of ours as well. I think Clayton and I wrote a book on, on TDD and have gone to many a, a company and, and brought TDD to organizations and, and espoused the benefits there. But I've also seen in in the wild uh, blog posts with maybe clickbait type titles where <laughs> TDD is dead and, and testing is dead and, and the like. Why TDD? Why, why now? What, is, is that still a practice that, that matters?
2: Is it beneficial to developers these days? Only if they're actually regular humans. I mean, if they're not, if they're geniuses, probably they, they don't need any textbooks or any approaches that are structured in any way he said about TDD is dead boy that article drove a lot of people crazy including me but anyway why why TDD when I started in 1980 you know and and if you go back and read software development theory in the 80s and 90s what you're going to see is that software development is a sort of a a a three-step process you have nothing and then you have everything and then you move on And not only is that, you know, what those books thought of software at that time, but of course, these ideas are still all very much being taught in our schools. So people come in into the trade and and they think that that's how it is. In the 80s, that was actually reasonably true. You went from project to project. The projects could be completely different. You didn't have anything. You didn't talk to anybody. And then all of a sudden you had everything and you shipped it. And then you were done with that project and you moved on to another project. But two things happened, one after the other, to change all that. The first one was the rather obvious, extraordinary decrease in the cost of physical computing. You know, I I bought my first computer for, I don't know, $1,800. And it had less computing power than your Fitbit. And um, actually, not just less, less by a great deal. Than your Fitbit. And, um, and it was like that. But the prices, of course, whoosh, plummeted. And that was, that was sort of phase one. Physical computing got so cheap. Everybody and her dog could have a computer. In fact, I mean, looking around this room, I know, I know I'm a computer geek. But I bet most of our audience, even if they're not in their office, looking around the room, there's probably 15 computers in view of them right now that they don't even mm-hmm. think about most of the time. Then phase two is this whole business of the cost of distribution plummeted. What happens then in those cases is markets open dramatically. When I can lower the physical costs and I can lower the distribution cost, all of a sudden I'm not writing the archetypal four-week application that that rents VHS tapes over the counter to a single Video store owner. I'm Netflix. All of a sudden, these projects that you could do in a month or six weeks, they disappear. Yes, there are still places in the trade where that occasionally happens, but far less commonly than than when I was a young geek. What happens is the whole concept of a finish line disappears. The applications take so long to get going that... There are many finish lines on their way to the finish line. And then, because we've invested so much time and energy, and because, oh, look, right over there, there are another five suckers we could get to rent videotapes from us. We expand our feature set to open up a new tranche of customers. Again and again and again. So what does this all add up to? A state of continuous change. Non-stop change. From the only greenfield software development that happens happens on the first day. Bam, there's your greenfield. Now it's dirty.
1: Now you're doing <laughs>
2: brownfield work and you're changing code every day. And that's what the overwhelming majority of software developers do. And so my thing is, why do I do TDD? Because it enables me to change things as rapidly as possible. We all know certain parties believe that if you don't do test-driven development, you're immoral. And <laughs> other parties believe that test-driven development is a matter of art and beauty and pride and blah, blah, blah. I have to say, you know, I'm in this for the money. And, <laughs> and I do test-driven development for the value because I can ship more value faster. It isn't that I don't care whether you want more features. I don't care whether you want fewer bugs. I don't care whether you want faster performance. I don't care whether you want more beautiful screens. In order to achieve any one of those values, you got to change code, don't ya? Any technique we have that changes code more effectively is a winning technique. Sorry, you asked me, am I passionate about this? Will you see what happens? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've learned a valuable lesson, John. <laughs>
0: That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about it quite like that. There isn't a finish line anymore. There isn't calling software done. My mother was fond of telling me that as a schoolgirl, she used to volunteer and work in, in the school office, and they would take attendance, and the punch cards would come in, and you would stick a screwdriver or a pencil through the punch cards and sort them that way. And then computers were mainframes, and then computers were soldered circuits, that you would deliver, and then they became uh, diskettes and CD-ROMs that would be burned and and written to and mailed out. And now it is, things are delivered via the internet or via a network or, or via the cloud. And enhancements happen
2: daily at this point. So if I have software I can't change, I'm out of the market. That's why not just TDD, but TDD and refactoring and continuous integration and all those other aspects what I call the modern software development synthesis, the modern synthesis of software development. That's why all that stuff is in there because it's about supporting our ability to change code as rapidly as possible.
1: Do you think that a lot of dev shops have maybe lost the plot on what they're developing for and, and why some of these practices matter?
2: I think they have lost the plot. Uh, in, a, in myriad ways, in, in myriad ways, right? I want to be forgiving because the demand, the, the, the demand is so extraordinary. It's easy to see how, how they made the decisions that they made. But their premises are broken, so fundamentally broken. They don't actually understand what they do. They think I'm a typist who has like a special keyboard with extra symbols on it. They try to control and drive and manage the work that way. And, of course, that doesn't work because I'm not a typist. Uh, You know, at one point I thought I coined this expression, but I didn't. It was Kevin Henney. He's he's been saying it like five years before I ever said it the first time. But the expression is this. Typing is not the bottleneck. Software development is is thinking. It's creating. It's making stuff up. A lot of shops have completely forgotten that. They think they'll go faster if they can find ways for us to either type faster or type less. And they need to find ways to, to help us change things and think more. If we can do yeah. those, we're good.
3: One, one thing I find interesting, because I, I agree entirely with that being the thing that people are wrong on, what's funny is I, I've never encountered anyone actually giving typing tests when they're interviewing developers which is funny because like that's effectively the way they treat it though like once you get the job like oh you're just here to type out the code and we never offer a typing test which which is the right thing to do right it's we i'm not advocating for us to start offering typing tests for for developers but uh yeah it's just funny uh, they're even inconsistent in their own logic w- what in your ways uh so as a coach like how how do you bring people around like when you encounter. Those, those folks, or are they hopeless?
2: I'm a really odd coach. Maybe that's not exactly what I mean. <laughs> Maybe it is, though. A lot of coaches feel that their job is to come in and install their idea of good into another organization. And I don't. I used to believe that. And what I found was that when I, when I came from that point of view, I lost more than I won. I, I didn't get what I want, wanted and I didn't get what they wanted either. And none of us got what we wanted and all of us were unhappy, and it didn't work. What I do is I go into shops and, and I ask them what they don't like. And I ask them who they wish they were, mostly as individuals, not as teams. I don't always ask it in, in that simple a way, right? There's sensitivity there. There's coaching. A large part of coaching is listening to things that aren't being said. What I try to do is create or exploit openings through which individuals, including sometimes me, can step a little bit closer to either who or how. People feel differently about the terminology. Who or how they wish to be. What does that amount to? I stand around with a lot of cool, clean water. and When people are working and they turn around and wipe their foreheads and look kind of thirsty, I say, hey, you want to drink? And they grab it from and they drink it and they're like, oh, cool. Thanks. That's all. I do that a lot until they start to say, where are you getting this water? You seem to have a lot of cool, clean water. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. And then I'm like, oh, well, I got this pool over here and that pool over there and those pools over there. And that's where I am getting it. And I do an enormous amount of that. I mean, the, the reality is that a large part of agile coaching is actually just letting people find out for themselves what it is they need to learn, Mm. you know, Mm. and then, and then giving them the chance to learn that I'm sure you guys know the figures, right? Half of all software development developers have less than five years of experience. Mm
1: -hmm. Right.
2: And that's staggering. That Mm -hmm. is staggering to me. And, and I had to wrestle with that for a long time first because of course it aggravated me so much then because once I decided I was going to do something about it, it was like, well, what can you do about that? It's, it's, 200 to one it's 200 to one out there how can I help 200 people with the stuff that they need and then I gradually realized that most of them didn't get into this business to become fabulously wealthy famous sexy celebrity computer geeks (laughs) they got into this business because they like this stuff most of the people who did get into this for money quit after a year (laughs) because you know what it's a taste. you got to have a taste for working with <laughs> high structure, high detail imperative text. You've really got to have a taste for it. Once I began to see them not as inferior in their training, not as people I had to tell things to, mm. but as people I could hand water to whenever they needed, whatever kind of water they needed, everything changed for me. So now, you know, when I, you know, I have my, my standard, this is who I am as a coach packet that I send to, to people who ask the questions. And and it says, you know, I'm not about a system. I don't, I don't come to your house and install the new agile wiring system. I am about helping people become who they wish they were. Somewhat to my surprise, some people bite, you know, (laughs) you, you might think to yourself, well, corporations will never go for that. Some of them do.
0: What does day 2 of an engagement look like? You've been there for day 1 and and you've provided refreshing drinks and they've they've started to catch on that they too would like to be refreshed from time to time and
2: and they're you know they're starting to to buy in on we're speaking day 2 in terms of the 7 days of creation obviously. <laughs> obviously oh, yeah. that doesn't happen on the second day. On the second day I still don't know which way the bathroom is. Day 2 I think increasingly for me, day two involves getting us into some sort of mobbing arrangement. And I don't mean like mobbing as a big formal practice and rules and da 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 I just mean, are we working together? Are we hanging out? I mean, now in this virtual age, are we hanging out while we work? Because if we're not hanging out while we work, we're not going to be able to make the next jump, which is the jump away from mechanics and into community. And so I do that. That's often a very delicate business. You know, I'm a coach. I'm, a, I'm perfectly prepared to engineer wins. And sometimes in mobs, I have to do that, right? Sometimes when I work with teams, especially that, because it's so scary, right? So many of us, we weren't trained how to do this. There's, there's bozos walking around telling you that it doesn't take any training or practice. When in fact, it's very difficult to learn how to do that. And so, you know, I'm very gentle, very gentle. It helps that I am always an external coach. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't work for companies and I am never in the chain of command. I don't know how folks who, who do, you know, inside coaching, I don't know how they work or if, if they work. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be mean in particular to internal coaches, right? We, we all know there are a lot of people who call themselves coaches who are basically bosses by any other name.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. I think I think it just takes a good stock of
2: whiskey at home. Yeah, right. Oh, man. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, I even wrote a muse about the old coach at the end of the bar, the old guy who comes in and sits down at the end of the bar when all the young coaches are sitting around talking about how stupid their people are and I wrote a muse about it because I was like, yeah, no, they're not. Actually, they're pretty smart. Most of them are pretty smart. They're just not solving the problem you want them to solve. Mm. <laughs> They're working on another problem. They're working on the problem of how do I feed my family? How do I, how do I get this little box on JIRA checked off? How do I do <laughs> this and that and the other, right? They're just not working on your problem. And, and you're making them use JIRA, which is in and of itself <laughs> is just terrible. God, what, what are we going to do about this? People, what are we going to do about this? Yeah, I,
3: I find the worst <laughs> is when When you're solving those problems and that's the company believes you're doing the right thing, like they don't even recognize that you're not solving the right problem and and they're like pleased with it. And I I, like I feel completely hopeless in those situations um, because like how can I communicate to you, the company, that you don't even know what up from down is because you have me doing uh, running on a treadmill and saying, hey, we're getting somewhere.
2: Yeah, boy, it's really something. And of course, it's not true that, you know, there's nothing inherent about JIRA. You you have to be clever to outwit its one task, one human thing. But you, you could be clever enough to do that. Honestly, it's just a database and a web, okay? There's nothing to it. But what is wrong with it, of course, is that these folks are adopting it in the belief that, in fact, one person, one task is correct, that estimates are commitments, that essentially what they're thinking of, they're thinking of themselves as a mastermind at the control panel. I yell at you, you yell at her, she yells at him, he yells at the team, and the team will do exactly what we want. And we will prove it by monitoring it all and mediating it all through a middle 90s software web (laughs) interface.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just you just apply pressure until the job's done, right? That's how
3: After all, it's just typing anyways.
0: Yeah, so. right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so true. It's all just typing, really.
0: So where where do you or towards the end of an engagement, the teams are humming along, they're they're speaking the same language, they're all on the same page together. What do you leave a team with knowledge-wise? Do you leave them with additional homework? You do you leave them with standard operating procedures their their team norms what what does it look like to take a newly formed or newly reformed team and ensure that they'll continue on their path to success
2: so if, if i if i win right if, if i have done a great job i don't have to to tell them anything except you know send them valentines day cards that say keep changing keep changing things don't forget to change things because what will have happened, right? If I'm genuinely, if I've if I've got it, they will have formed community, as opposed to machine. I might come back and mediate because communities sometimes need some mediation. They they need some they need some help sometimes with with outsider voices giving them, uh, you know, a third way between two sides. So I might do that from time to time. But but if the if I've really done my job. I get people who are happy to be doing what they're doing and successful. And, and essentially, even though I might not even ever use this word for them, living in community, you know, and they just don't know it because nobody told them that that's what community looks like. They just think they have a really great job. So are
1: there, are there hallmarks to uh, what you consider a healthy community that we could uh, work towards or uh, notice once we're there?
2: Yeah, boy, I'm not sure I can rattle them off open disagreement right disagreement that doesn't creep around corners but just comes out that's a big one a, a more rich understanding of consensus than the sort of naive view that consensus means unanimity consensus is a little a little thicker than unanimity it involves in particular it involves standing aside you know, sometimes I, I, I actually live in a hippie community where we make our decisions by consensus. But, you know, sometimes you look around the room and everybody in the room thinks we should do A. And you think you're, they're wrong. But you know what? A is not going to kill us. It's not life threatening. <laughs> so let's try A. Maybe I should stand aside and let them do what they want to do. Maybe they'll learn something or... Maybe I'll learn something. Direct conversation everywhere. Right? The more humans are speaking to each other, not in a meeting, the better. And that's kind of, you know, the magic sauce. So that's, that's three things.
3: Okay. Um, so we've talked about TDD. You've mentioned uh, the extreme programming disciplines and uh, community and other stuff. Many People, especially of our listeners, you know, they're in a situation where they're maybe trying to do this, pursue this stuff on their own, uh, or they're trying to bring it back to their teams. Are are there any resources that you could point people to that would help them either kind of develop that personally or be able to bring these things to their teams?
2: So, without listing specific resources, there's a lot. There's a lot out there, but rather, I see individuals, especially individuals in large organizations need what I call four mentors. They need uh, a pole star mentor, somebody who's, you know, somebody you think is a big deal, (laughs) not in your company, who is really like the expert in your thing, right? Somebody passionate, somebody noisy, a pole star that you can orient yourself towards and say, North must be that way. Mm. Um, then if you're in a large company, you need a rabbi. Rabbi is a, is a, is a word that comes from, from of all things, uh, uh, law enforcement. In large city police departments, um, you need somebody two or three levels above you who actually wants you to succeed. Not mm-hmm. a project, not a task, not a political argument, but you. And so they will help you engineer permissions, and enthusiasm and support from within your organization to let you go study and learn and experiment with these things. Experimenting is really critical, of course. So what's that? That's the poll star. That's the mentor, you might need a teacher. Uh, there are plenty of good teachers out there on the uh, uh, on the internet. Um, they, they teach in a variety of different styles. You want to find the ones that fit you. If you work with a teacher, you know, a teacher's material and it doesn't work, then that's cool. Doesn't mean they suck. Doesn't mean you suck. It means the chemistry wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who, who I think are, are some of the best teachers are, are folks like Ron Jeffries, who's also a pole star, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> Joe Rainsberger, also a pole star. Uh, Ted Young. Um, very, very good teacher. All of these people have continuous live output about how they do TDD, which is pretty cool Mm -hmm. stuff. And then finally you need a buddy mentor, right? You need a swimming buddy. uh We don't usually think of our swim buddy as a, as a mentor, but in fact they are right. Um, a swimming buddy provides us with the ability to, to find out whether, whether what just happened was really hard and bad. Or whether I just am not looking at it in the right way. You know, if if we both say, yeah, that sucked, then you know what? It probably sucked and wasn't the right thing to do. (laughs) But with a a learning partner, and we don't even have to be learning together at the same place, but we have to be learning approximately the same stuff at approximately the same time. Mm -hmm. And if we have that, then we're actually good to go. So that's what I would say. I would say what you got to do is line up your four mentors Uh, Polestar, Rabbi, Teacher, and Buddy. For Buddies, you can often go to uh, there's only about 25 bazillion uh, meetups at which you could (laughs) find uh, a potential Buddy simply by during the introductions saying I'm looking for somebody who wants to do you know, TDD on car software in C or no, in (laughs) 4th. You go to 10 of those meetings, I guarantee you're going to get three people. Say, oh yeah, that's what I want to do too. Boom, you got yourself a swimming buddy. You know, finding teachers is easy because they're out there on the internet. Mm -hmm, Rabbis is hard because it all depends on your organization. And poll stars are easy because, you know, they make a lot of noise. So that
1: kind of rolls into the next thing. Uh, What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers?
2: So, um, uh, y- y'all, y'all ping me to say, did I, you know, was I up for doing the podcast? And the answer is yes, of course I was. And I have a meetup next Tuesday and I had a meetup last Friday and I, and I had a conference, uh, uh three weeks ago and so on and so forth. And the reason I do that is because I believe in interest groups. I believe in them. I got my start. As a professional programmer, because I ran an interest group about Forth, the programming language. And I know I'm not the only one, especially the OG, right? We we believe in that movement. Go join meetups. Hang out with people. You don't have to love every minute of every meetup. But Uh listen to the people that you like in the crowd in addition to the person who's on stage, if it's one of those kind of meetups, and then reach out to them on the side. Geekery can be a really lonely business. And what that means is that actually you're not alone. There's lots of people out there who want to learn at the same rate and the same intense stuff that that you want to. And so I, I would urge everybody to Get out there and go to meetups. And when meetups get physical again, go to those too. Although I hope virtual meetups don't go away. Because mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. I think the virtual meetups have been some of the best stuff. They're certainly a lot better than virtual conferences, frankly. You mm-hmm. know, I think they're more effective. They're cooler. Um, it's, it's easier when there's you know, 15 of us. right? Because we can all talk.
3: Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep, uh, just keep up with what you're working on?
2: Oh, well, you can't miss me on... Go to Twitter. It's G-Paw Hill, G-E-E-P-A-W-H-I-L-L, and you'll get the whole package. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you just really only are up for conversations about technique, conversations about software development in the larger sense, conversations about the philosophy of design, then just you can go to the site, which is the same thing, G-Paw Hill, Dot org and I have uh, all of the stuff that I do on Twitter that is actually germane these long threads that I write turns into a blog and you can get the full text you know drop spam free into your mailbox you can also get audio you can get the audio version of podcast dropped into your to your anchor or whatever based uh, podcast system that you use so that's that's how you get a hold of me and of course I am Jepa gpaw at gpawhill.org. You can drop me a line. All right, g Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us today. This has been great. Cool. Cool. I had a a nice time. Thanks for letting me blah, blah, blah so much. (laughs) (laughs) That was g Hill. g is a coach,
0: a professional harvester of the value of change in the software development industry. A geek for 40 years, he spent the last two decades helping individuals, teams, and organizations take steps to become closer to who or how they wish to be.
1: If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at
3: sixfiguredev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev.
0: This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm
3: John Ash.